0: theme for the month of January, our spiritual theme is possibility. And I've been reflecting all month, and actually before this month, I've been reflecting on this theme and wondering why it fills me so deeply with hope. Why is it that possibility, an accepting possibility, can become such a religious and deeply religious experience. Isn't religion supposed to be about answers? Yes and no. Isn't it supposed to be about certainties? We Unitarian Universalists are fond of certainties, but we are equally fond of the questions. We are equally fond of exploring and allowing ourselves throughout our lives to continue learning, even if it's uncomfortable, to continue keeping ourselves open to possibilities. So this morning, as we worship together, I invite you into a space of curiosity and possibility I invite you to let your spirit expand beyond the realm of answers and into the realm of possibility. On this Sunday, when we celebrate and honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, let us dream together of what becomes possible when we choose love. Imagine with me, if only for the next 60 more or less minutes, imagine that the opposite of love is not hate, but certainty. Let us listen together for the song of the universe. Our opening words are from Reverend Gretchen Haley, who says, Let astonishment be possible. Whatever you have come in anticipating whatever you expect or worry for our world, for the future, for our lives, let it go. Make space in your heart to be surprised. Make room in your soul for a new story to take shape. Let astonishment be possible at this life that remains a miracle. Imagine here the bursting of joy relentless and resilient coming in waves washing over us with music and story silence and still this dreaming together being hope for each other and courage to believe in this new day dawning for us all This is the song of the universe from uh, my friend and colleague, Reverend Manish Mishra Marzetti. For each child that's born, a morning star rises and sings to the universe who we are. Listen carefully. Can you still hear the song? The one sung for you when you were born? The song sung by a cosmos in motion rejoicing at your life? You, the result. You, the outcome. You, the celebration. Listen carefully. Can you hear it still? The song of possibility. A reminder that we still have time to be who we are and what we need to be. Listen carefully. The vast expanse echoes a recognition that it's not always easy. Possibilities can be hard to pursue. Roads not taken, wrong turns, destinations that disappoint. Through all of this, the song persists. The universe sings no less because time and space wear us thin. The music calls us to recognize our limitations to recognize that the song is best sung with others. Here, in community, bringing alive that most basic and original impulse, the desire to sing to the universe who we are, to celebrate and share our lives with others. I never imagined when I thought about sharing with you this idea of the danger of a single story I, I never imagined that we would find ourselves in a situation where we are held hostage to a single story you may have you may have heard of the uh, nigerian writer chimamanda ngozi adichie i had never heard of her until several years ago when i was part of a Uh, curriculum in in a Unitarian Universalist church. We were learning to become facilitators for a particular uh, series of conversations around all of the things that divide us in community. Uh, Curriculum is called Beloved Conversations. And as part of our very first time together, we listened to, we watched, actually, we watched a TED Talk she gave, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, I'm probably wrong. But it's called The Danger of a Single Story. And I encourage you, if, if you're interested, it's well, worth, it's well worth listening to. In it, she asks to tell her story. So she begins with her childhood in Nigeria She describes herself as a little girl who loved to read and read everything she could get her hands on. I'm with her there, I was that that little girl too. She claims her mother says she began to read when she was two, but she figures that's an exaggeration. It was more like three or four, but we know how mothers are, we exaggerate. And then she began her career as a writer when she was six or seven years old, and she describes the stories she wrote. In these stories, where the heroes and heroines were always, of course, children, they were blonde and blue-eyed, they ate apples, they played in the snow, and they talked about the weather. This, she says, in spite of the fact that she had never seen snow, she did not have blue eyes and blonde hair, she ate mangoes, and in Nigeria, there's not much reason to talk constantly about the weather, (laughs) unlike here in Harford County, where the, the weather is a matter of vital interest. She says in this, in this talk, she says that she's really, really grateful for the literature that she read as a child, which was largely British and United States literature, uh, targeted, of course, toward children. She's really grateful for this literature because it opened up new worlds for her, and in fact, eventually led to her becoming what she is today, a world-famous writer. But she also says that as a child, she was especially vulnerable to the single story. Because without realizing it, what she learned at the same time was that literature did not include her, although it did leave her with an abiding curiosity about what ginger beer is, (laughs) which took some time to satisfy So I I understand in some ways what she's talking about because when I was a child, many of the stories, especially when we lived in Puerto Rico and in Spain, many of the stories that I was able to read, they were translated into Spanish, but they were in fact British stories. Uh, Some from the United States, but mostly British. And I used to wonder what this thing boarding school was. (laughs) And I too had curiosity about ginger beer, which I have yet to try and I figure at this point it's probably too late. Later in her life, of course, she was able to explore Nigerian writers and writers from other African countries and to expand her, that early single story, expand and, and grow along, along the way. Now, you and I know, because we have grown up in a climate where these differences or these single stories, I mean, we're, we're shaped by them, whether we like them or not. We're shaped and often divided by the single story. But you and I also know that it's tempting for us to define ourselves by the single story. And she would be perfectly within her rights to do that. She could go on to only talk about all of those times in her life where she has been stereotyped or defined according to the single story. But she doesn't, she doesn't. So she goes on to tell about another chapter in her life. Her parents were middle class her her father, I believe, was a university professor and her mother was an administrator. So both both of her parents had good, you know, well-paying jobs. And she says at one point in her childhood they hired a new houseboy, and his name was Fide. She says, My mother only told me one thing about Fide, and that was that he was very, very poor, and that his family was very, very poor. And when I didn't finish my dinner, my mother would say, think about Fide and his family. Now, I know some of you are old enough to remember that trope, where when we didn't finish our dinner, what did our parents say? Think about the starving children in China. Remember that? I mean, to this day, it it befuddles me to think how my overeating would benefit the children in any part of the world. But But that's another story. So one day, she and her family went to visit Fide in his his village, and they went into his house. And she saw an exquisitely woven, hand-woven basket, and she asked where it came from. And they said, well, a member of the family, I forget who, wove it. And in that moment, she realized that it had never occurred to her that it was possible for there to be another story besides Fide's poverty and the poverty of his family. That it wasn't possible for the two things, a beautifully woven basket and poverty to exist together in the same space. So she learned for herself that her, because of what she had been taught, she herself was perpetuating a single story. I tell you all of this not for purposes of of sort of interest or having a good conversation afterwards although I always hope that happens. I tell you this because I believe actually with all my heart that it is the deep work of religious people to understand and to celebrate the complexities of our stories and the stories of everyone else who shares this planet with us. Whether they're sitting next to us this morning in the sanctuary, waiting across the street with picket signs, going to the hospital, or enjoying the first day of vacation, None of us is a single story. And all of us, to one degree or another, are shaped by the single stories we have learned. Whether about ourselves or whether about others. Whether that horrible comment that some of us heard over and over again as children, that all the children in China were starving to any other of the series of the kinds of quick stereotypes that we resort to in order to make sense of the world we, we live in. The single story holds us hostage, not just when it's being perpetrated by people in our government. If we watch too much MSNBC we are hostage to the single story. If we watch too much Fox News, we are hostage to the single story. If we imagine that every migrant is either a rapist, a gang member, or a saint, we are holding other human beings and ourselves, hostage to a single story. And I know, I mean I know, because I wrestle with this all the time. I know how difficult it is to hold competing narratives in our minds and hearts. How somehow it's easier to pray for someone who's innocent than it is to pray for someone who is complicated and who has done wrong, especially in our eyes. That it's more difficult for us generally to have sympathy for someone if we can believe about them that they just don't deserve what happened. I remember at the congregation I served in Philadelphia, we we hosted every year for a month as a a partnership with a really good nonprofit organization that helped uh, people who and families in particular who, who didn't have a place to live. So we hosted usually four or five families for a month in our facility every, facility, facility every year. In fact, one of the administrators in the congregation was someone who had gone through this program. But I remember thinking that the program, very specifically because they wanted to recruit congregations like ours, and they did, it was, it was quite successful. But the families who came to us had to fit certain criteria You can imagine what those criteria were, right? No arrest records. Nothing complicated in their lives. And I remember thinking, you know, we do this and it's not easy because we provided, you know, three meals a day for four or five families. But what would it have been like as a a test of our religious commitment, our belief in the dignity of all? To house families where maybe the parents had just been released from prison. It's an interesting question, isn't it? And I understand how it works, right? The political world works in, in the way it works. But for this time together this morning, I'm asking us to open our hearts to possibilities, open our hearts to the complexity. Because each of us is a beautifully woven basket that may have flaws somewhere. It may not hold water. and may not sit straight on a table. In 1966, Reverend Martin King delivered the Ware Lecture, which is one of sort of the premier lectures in our Unitarian Universalist Association, not long, of course, before he was assassinated. And I, again, not that I should be in charge of your reading list. That's not why you called me, but I can't help myself. I encourage you, if you haven't, to, to read this lecture. You can hear voice in these, in these words. And the title of the lecture is Don't Sleep Through the Revolution. And it's, and it's great. It's filled with inspiration and with direct calls to action. But towards the end, and he talks about his connections with particularly with Unitarians and with, with Universalists and, and you know we, we, many of us stood with him in the civil rights movement. But towards the end of the lecture, he talks about what I would say this morning matters more than anything else, being the people of love. You see, the worst part about the single story is that it traps us in a place that is disempowering. And it traps us in a place of not love. It traps us in a place of judgment. And if we're in a place of judgment, we're not choosing love. I would rather have us be the people who are nice and kind to our pets and our spouses and our children and the people who are always right. I would rather have us be the people who smile at one another and forgive ourselves our mistakes and forgive one another our mistakes. I believe that when we acknowledge our complexities, we'll sleep better and breathe better. So I do want to end with a quote from this Ware Lecture. He's talking about love standing at the center of our struggle. He says, I think it is necessary to see the meaning of love in higher terms. People who are oppressed should not love their oppressors from the standpoint of being overly affectionate. I'm not thinking of eros, he says, or of friendship, but of agape, which is understanding, creative, redemptive, goodwill for all human beings, an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Choose love, dear ones. Choose love this week. Choose love next week. And remember who you are. Ashe. Amen. And blessed be. Go with blessing, my most beloved. Go with blessing this week. Go with your heart filled with possibility. Filled with the knowing that you are not alone. And that you are loved and held. Amen.